Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. The first time I interviewed Stacey Abrams in 2017, she was running for governor of Georgia, a contentious race that she ended up losing to Brian Kemp by fewer than two percentage points. But instead of giving up, Abrams played the long game. She dug into the weakness of her own party, expanded her coalition, and became a national voice against voter suppression. And her work paid off. Despite all the skeptics, she helped turn Georgia blue, both in the 2020 presidential election and in the recent high-stakes Senate races of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Abrams is a hero to many on the left and is being called an existential threat to the right. She's also a polymath, a novelist, entrepreneur, and lawyer who recently wrote that what Georgia accomplished, quote, can be exported to the rest of the Sun Belt and the Midwest, but only if we understand how we got here. So which red state does Abrams have her eye on now? And what's her plan to defend against a renewed onslaught from the GOP to pass even tougher restrictions on voter access ahead of 2022? And as the Supreme Court is also set to rule on the issue. Stacey, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. You've done a lot of things and you you flipped the state. You were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. You were shortlisted for the Oscars. You've done a lot in the last couple of years. (laughs) Do you sleep? I do. Not not as much as I need to. I'm actually working on that right now. Are you? Are, I am, uh, actually. But you've written a book called While Justice Sleeps, right? Yes. And you're, you're writing under your own name. Is that right? I am. This time, instead of Selena Montgomery, although I'm going to be sorry to miss her. Well, no, Selena's still here. Selena was just necessary because when I started writing romance, I was also writing tax treatises on the unrelated business income tax exemption and uh, other fascinating topics. That's and it a was sexy just, topic. That's well, a- you know, I just wanted people to have both <laughs> sides of me and, yeah. and be very clear about the difference. Okay. All right. But this one you're writing, uh, While Justice Sleeps, which is a, a thriller, right? It's more it of is. a thriller. Um, you didn't clerk at the Supreme Court, did you? I did not. You did not, but you are writing about a Supreme Court clerk. Yeah. My younger sister was a district court clerk, and I've got friends who clerked at the Supreme Court. So I leaned on friends for color commentary. You decided to move to thrillers. You had romance novels before. Why the shift? Well, most of my romance, all of my romance novels are romantic suspense. So they were always thriller novels, but with romance at the core of the story. So writing this legal thriller, it essentially was like writing my other novels. I just didn't develop the romance. Uh, But my first book was about a chemical physicist who was being chased through the Middle East. And I wrote one about an ethnobotanist who was uh, being chased through Peru. A lot of chasing. 
Yeah. Um, although I did have a serial killer romance novel too. So. Oh, all right. And it's coming out. When is it coming out? May the 11th. Oh, wow. Soon. So absolutely. Okay. Um, so let's move into actual reality, although that sounds more interesting to me. Um, but let's talk about the 2020 presidential elections. I want you to take me back to November 19th when the whole country was waiting for the recount in Georgia. Where were you when the state was officially called for Joe Biden? Probably on a Zoom call. I mean, (laughs) we knew in November, basically that week, the night of the election, Lauren Groargo, who you know very well, she's the CEO of Fair Fight. She was my campaign manager, and we've been working together for the last decade. Our numbers told us that he was going to win Georgia, but we knew it was going to take time for that to become revealed to the rest of America. And so it was that Friday that it became absolutely clear. And then we went through the hand recount, the audit, the additional recount. I I think they had carrier pigeons with abacuses trying to also make sure the votes were right. But it was never in the bag, but we felt very confident that the numbers we were tracking across the state signaled the very strong likelihood that we could win. We knew that our aggressive attention to expanding access to the right to vote, making certain that there was uniformity across the state, making certain that people cured their ballots and that we had a very robust program to ensure that people knew what the rules were and that the counties had the resources they needed to allow people to take advantage of those rules. That's what we had done. And so I think anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen if they live in a swing state is maybe they have magic. But I felt more confident about that outcome and more certain that we had made dramatic progress than I've felt in previous elections other than, of course, my own. Did you anticipate the amount of pushback from the president and others? Oh, yes. So Fair Fight, the organization we created in 2018, we spent a year and a half doing research on the just remarkable infrastructure that the GOP was building. This was the first time they had been permitted to engage in the type of coordination that they leveraged, which was to take the RNC, the Republican National Committee, the Trump campaign, and third-party groups like True the Vote, and actually coordinate their efforts. And they had a very detailed and, and expansive plan to try to stop voters from being heard, to try to discredit the election. And then when you layer that on top of, in their minds, the ignominy of losing in Georgia— in a state where their loss would come at the hands of voters that they had diligently suppressed for so many years, and a state that for many was a sure thing, of course the reaction would be dramatic. And I think what escalated it in the public eye was the fact that the allies, like Brad Rassenberger, who had been very much a part of this false voter fraud narrative, he had created one of the first voter fraud task forces, which was basically, it was an attempt to intimidate voters and stop them from voting by mail, stop them from participating. Yet Brian Kemp, who had spent eight years as Secretary of State, engaged in the most egregious voter suppression. The fact that the two of them actually refused to undercut their constructed election system, I think that was the surprise. And that's why the virulence of Trump's response was so epic. And Brad Raffensperger is, of course, the Secretary of State of Georgia. Um, Was it a surprise to you that they did that? I I think you were not expecting them to having tangled with them for years. So Brad has been very happy to continue the behaviors of his predecessors, both Brian Kemp and before Brian Kemp, it was Karen Handel, 
who briefly served in the U.S. Congress, their attention and diligence to voter suppression is nearly unparalleled. But they also had been sued into submission. There are multiple lawsuits, some from Fair Fight, from other organizations, Mark Elias. The leadership conference had been supportive of a lot of efforts to hold them accountable. We saw the Lawyers Committee, you name it, they had been sued. And we also had advocacy. Mm -hmm. By the time we get to the elections, because of just the colossal breakdown in June of 2020 with the primaries, they both had their reputations at stake. They had authorized a $107 million purchase of new machines. Right. So it was on them. It was on them. It was their system. So they weren't defending democracy. They were defending their behavior. And so even though it caused them to run afoul of the Trump universe, they were also basically defending the decisions they'd made. And so anyone who you know chalks that up to some form of integrity or heroism is sadly misguided because in the midst of all of those things, Brad Rassenberger continued to intimidate communities of color. He castigated groups that simply tried to expand access to the right to vote using data he provided. And so I, I've always been very uh, hostile to the idea that he, they deserve credit for doing their jobs. So no credit due of his pushback of Trump? Not really. I mean, look, I'm glad he did it because he could have done something wrong. He could have kowtowed and capitulated. And so, yes, I'm pleased that he didn't, but I'm not going to laud him and venerate him and you know, celebrate Brian Kemp for trying to protect their legacies. This wasn't about a concern that meant that they wanted more voters to have access because these are the two men who are currently engaged in a battle to renew voter suppression in Georgia. More than 50 bills have come through and they haven't denounced any of them. So then when you come to credit, how much credit do you take for the win? Because you sort of got lauded by everybody as you and Lauren also uh, and Fair Fight. Um, how do you look at your credit that you get? Hey, I, I am part of a coalition of organizations. I would say I, I had a bit of a lead in the process in that I helped to secure tens of millions of dollars for the state of Georgia. I have been a, you know, a clarion demanding attention for the state for about a decade. I helped build infrastructure and invest in organizations. I mean, one thing that Lauren and I are always very intentional about is when we raise money, we share our, our resources. So when we did the New Georgia Project back in 2014, we took a quarter of a million dollars and made sure we gave it to other organizations that weren't going to have access to the resources we did. In 2020 and 2021, we shelled out more than $25 million to other organizations. And so my posture is that, yes, I I had a leadership role in this and in a lot of ways became sort of the avatar for what happened. But what I always want people to remember is that it took a coalition of organizations more than a decade to get us here. Well, it's also, it's a trap to be the figure because you become polarizing or you become... <laughs> It's a bit late for that. <laughs> yeah, I know that. So one of the things that you had managed to do over your political career is not become that. You had been known for doing compromises with Republicans and, you know, when there was even exit polling, that people like you. But there's been a real effort to make you into that. I would say they kind of did it to Hillary Clinton. They do it to AOC. Um, it's almost always women, actually. How do you feel in that role right now? If I'm being demonized for expanding access to our democracy and defending the rights of Americans to vote, I'm okay with that characterization. What they cannot say is that I've done anything that was self-aggrandizing. And it means the contrast between my response to my election and, and Trump's response. My response was not to sue to change the outcome of the election. 
I accepted the legal sufficiency once we did the work to make sure as many votes could be counted as possible, because that was the first responsibility. I, I asked people to vote. And I need to make sure their votes got counted. So on November 16th, I acknowledge the legal sufficiency of the election. Mm-hmm. I like your legal sufficiency, because Brad used that to say that you were like Trump. But, but the difference is the legal sufficiency argument, you can't then question a system if you say the system is okay. It, it, there's an internal conflict there that I refuse to indulge in. And I will acknowledge the legal sufficiency, which means that Brian Kemp is the governor. I've called him such. But I challenge the underlying system, and that's what I refused to suborn. And my fight for the last two years, my work for the last 30 years, has been about making sure people have access to the right to vote. And not Democrats, not liberals, not people of color, but that Americans who are eligible citizens have access to the right to vote. That is a stark difference and departure from what we saw happen in 2020 from Donald Trump and his ilk. When Brad made that comparison, um, how did you take that when he was trying to make a link between you and President Trump in, you know, I I don't like this election, I'm going to keep saying it? It is their very, you know, narrow read that they keep trying to hold on to to diminish the work that we're doing because they know we were effective. More people were able to cast their ballots and have them counted through absentee balloting because of the work that's been done to mitigate voter suppression. Nationally, we have had a dramatic impact, so dramatic that at this moment, we know the 253 bills being introduced in 43 legislatures across the country because we were so effective at helping mitigate voter suppression. But but let's be really clear. This is about politics for them. And they are going to look for any opportunity to diminish both my integrity and my effectiveness. Does it work? I don't think so, because we not only won in November, we won again in January. And overall, I'm, I am I used the word avatar before, and, I, and I, I mean it in this way. I do not like the tendency for messianic leadership, where people become the thing they fight for. I'm not the only person doing it, but if I have to be the lightning rod that draws the attention so others can keep the work going, I'm okay with that. But hasn't Messianic been part of the history of America since the beginning? There's always these compelling figures, political figures throughout our histories littered with them. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's important to learn from it. You can't stop what other people cast on you, but you can decide what you absorb. And we have seen it happen time and again where people start to believe their own hype. When they start to believe they are the one, they are the only one, no one else can do this, they are essential. My job is to be irrelevant. My job is to build things that are so strong and so resilient that my not being there doesn't stop the work. And so New Georgia Project is a perfect example. I founded the New Georgia Project, got attacked for it, did the work to make certain it was stable and sustainable, and then spun it off. Fair Fight is something I created. But Lauren Grewargo is an extraordinary leader. So is Selena Jagaday, who serves as a managing director. They do the work day to day. I am an integral part of it. But if I have to be pulled out of it, the work still happens. Have you absorbed some of it, though? Has it been negative or positive? I mean, it's hard to have people say (laughs) terrible things about you all the time. (laughs) On the other hand, you're like the savior of the Democratic Party. That's also very discomforting. Why Um, is that discomforting? the, The discomfort comes in because... It, one, puts not just pressure, which I don't mind, but I don't do this work to be lauded for it. And it's just weird. And and not and I don't mean that at all to diminish how appreciative I am, but 
the corollary between why I do the work and how people react to it is just very different. So what is the corollary of why you do it, if you want to state it? Because I truly believe that we have work to do. I think that poverty is wrong. I think that we have failed to meet our obligations to those who are in need and vulnerable and disadvantaged and marginalized. I think we waste human capital through incarceration and through denial of basic services. And I know that the only way things change is if people do the work to create that change. And I'm one of those people. But internally, there is always this bit of a a rub where the attention sometimes, I think, distracts from the work. Yeah, the Stacy show, essentially. Yes. I have no interest in starring in that show. I, I'm okay making a brief you know, cameo appearance, but <laughs> that's not the point. All right. So you, you obviously haven't announced a gubernatorial run in 2022 yet. You might do that. Um, but GOP strategists are already starting to raise money for a Stop Stacy campaign. They moved from Stop the Steal to Stop Stacy. Um, has all this work made you a bigger target for Republicans? Yes. So what do you do about that? Look, I'm the same person I was when I was in the legislature. I find the sudden vitriol to be a bit (laughs) interesting. When I was in the legislature, I was the Democratic leader. My job was to try to defeat their bills. It was to try to promote the bills that I held to be the most important. And it was to work together when we needed to. That's all I'm doing. So you're doing the same thing. They've just decided to focus on you. And you had success. You did change the course of the election. (laughs) And that's the problem. That's the problem. It wasn't that they are surprised at what I'm doing. They're surprised it worked. And so I've now become the singular target of their venom, but they're also trying to pass laws to block everyone else. So uh, recently, the Georgia State Election Board voted to start an investigation into the new Georgia project. The election board alleged that over 1,200 voter applications were submitted late in 2019, and they listed Senator Raphael Warnock as a respondent on the case. Warnock, of course, is one of the two Democrats who won the Senate election in the runoffs. Uh, earlier this year, a lot due to your work. The new Georgia Project said that listing him was a mistake. What do you make of this investigation? That it's the same kind of witch hunt they undertook in 2014. When new Georgia Project started doing voter registration in 2014, I actually called then Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, said, I'm doing this massive voter registration work. Want to make sure we don't run afoul of any laws. He sent his chief lieutenant to train our team. We put together a training booklet based on their information, and then they accused us of violating the rules. We're like, we're following the rules you gave us. But their response to anything that advances the cause of expansion of voting rights, their response is to attack Black and Brown organizations. They did it before me. They did it to Latino organizations and AAPI organization. Under Brian Kemp, they arrested Black women who simply wanted to increase the school board representation for students of color who comprise the majority of the school district. Their response to any advance is to demonize and, if they can, criminalize the behavior that actually creates access and opportunity. So the word used is witch hunt, which, of course, President Trump has used, you know, right now just with his tax investigations. Too loaded a word for you to use or not? I I think it's too weak a word. I mean, yes, it harkens to a terrible time in our history, but this is criminalization. It is demonization. And it is an ostracization because their hope is that not only do they diminish the organization, they're trying to tar the reputations of those associated. Raphael Warnock was the chair of the board, but say you fought very clearly as the CEO. Rather than correcting their mistake, they, you know, glom onto it and they try to use it to, again, demonize someone who has done something they don't like, which is win in elections to represent communities that are largely 
kept out of the political process. Mm-hmm. So talk about that. The Republicans in the State House and Senate have recently introduced a number of bills related to the election process, including one bill that Fair Fight has called a, quote, voter suppression bill. Can you talk about the changes that are in the docket? Oh, let's be clear. They're all voter suppression bills. This isn't one off. They've introduced 50 bills that are designed to either discourage or prevent people from casting a ballot. That's voter suppression. And so they are trying to eliminate automatic voter registration, which is the first hurdle for participating in an election. This is when you're somewhere like a like the DMV. DMV. Yes. Right. Georgia has automatic voter registration at the behest of Republicans. They put it in place and they're trying to retract it now because too many people they don't like have started to use it. They want to eliminate no excuses absentee voting, something Republicans created. It's when you can vote absentee without being elderly, disabled, or in the military. Number three, they're trying to cut the number of days and hours of in-person early voting, which was used by 1.3 million Georgians. Especially during the pandemic, people wanted to decide when to go. And and let's put aside the pandemic. It's important for people who have work schedules that are now more diverse and erratic than any time in, in our history. When you have a gig economy, you cannot assume that everyone has the same amount of time on Tuesday to show up. They're trying to eliminate weekend days because 36.7% of the people who use the Sunday voting opportunity were Black people, and that's too many Black people, and so they're trying to rescind that. They are trying to break apart not just the accident of voting, they're actually also now attacking the mechanisms, the people who are responsible for certifying the elections and for running the elections. They have a piece that says that counties can no longer apply for grants to cover the cost of actually meeting the need. So in Georgia in 2020, we helped secure $30 million in grant funding to support overworked, under-resourced county officials who are responsible for elections. They are now making it illegal for them to apply for or receive those grants. So what are the chances of these passing? Where where are you? They are all highly likely to pass. Uh, One raft of terrible bills have already come out of the Senate, another bill. So one of the things they're doing is they're taking different bills that are terrible and putting them all together in a package The Senate package is already moving. The House package is in motion as well. And let's be clear, Georgia is a singular example. But as I said earlier, 253 of these bills are moving through 43 legislative bodies. And and the chances of them passing? Highly in states where you have a triumvirate, meaning the governor, the House and the Senate, and that's in 23 states. Any state that has those has a very high likelihood of those bills passing. And then what do you do? You pass H.R. 1, which is federal legislation that, you know, unfortunately, because of the decentralization of elections, the state has certain perquisites to administer elections. But you can set federal law that says that this is the manner and style in which you have to conduct elections, namely automatic voter registration, same day registration, uniform guidelines for early voting, uniform guidelines for absentee voting. It would only apply to federal elections. But most states do not run parallel systems. You vote the federal ticket and then you move over and vote for the state or local ticket. All right. So you've beaten them at their game and then they're putting they're changing the rules, essentially, from your perspective. Well, they're, they're changing the rules to reflect the you know, halcyon time for voter suppression, which is Jim Crow. Right. So your your work just hasn't gotten resistance from Republicans. In an op-ed you wrote with Lauren Grow-Wargo on how to turn states blue, you wrote, to build a new battleground state, any leaders push this evolution will face resistance and at times open warfare from those who are on their side of the aisle, but also on the other side for the struggle for ascendancy. What kind of resistance are you talking about? So 2014, ran the New Georgia Project, submitted applications for voting. Only 40,000 plus were processed. We accused the Secretary of State of once again engaging in voter suppression. 
And Democrats actually accused us of being misleading, of not having actually done the work. Democrats wrote screeds against me saying that I had done something wrong and that my mission was already failed. Democrats were quite unhappy with the aggressive fundraising I'd used to build the capacity, even though those dollars were disseminated across a number of organizations. But in the instant moment, because there was not an immediate victory that followed the work and because the work was different than the process that they had used for years, I was not seen as an innovator. I was seen as an infiltrator and as someone who was dangerous to the cause. Right. And then on the other side, you have Kelly Loeffler recently announced her own so-called <laughs> voting rights group. You're laughing. Is it a chuckle or is it a chortle? I'm not sure which it's one. A, it's a chuckle. Chortle, I would have to take it more seriously. Okay. It's called Greater Georgia. Loeffler's Republican, of course, was the former junior senator of Georgia who lost to Raphael Warnock and stayed in Trump's corner until the January 6th attacks when she decided that was bad. But the mission of her new organization sounds not dissimilar to the mission of Fair Fight, register new voters, reach more communities, strengthen the elections. And you've previously said that Loeffler's efforts were fueled by conspiracy theories, even though she seems to have co-opted a lot of your words. Do you see this project as complimenting you? Because you are for voter expansion, right? So it would be for everybody. Well, I think the compliment is that she thinks that she has to have a corollary to our work. The challenge is that she's very intentional about the goal of only registering white conservatives. She doesn't say white. She does say conservatives. The registration work that I've always encouraged is focused on communities of color, but we don't have a say in their ideology. And the reality is we targeted communities of color because they had the single largest bastion of under-registered participation. She intentionally says that she's going to serve the conservative cause. Our mission is to protect democracy. Her notion is to protect the kind of democracy that allows her to win. And my experience is that that democracy tends to mean the erosion of and erasure of communities of color, poor communities, and the marginalized and disadvantaged. She says she believes in election integrity, which is the code language they use to justify voter suppression. And that means that she has not a similar intent, but she has the exact opposite intent. She wants to retrench she wants to renew the effect of voter suppression, and she wants to do so for the benefit of those that she considers the superior voters. And my issue is not that everyone we support will win. My point is that we should have a fair contest. Right. And what she's doing, you think, is just a feint. It's a feint, but I think they're legitimately concerned at the rate of loss. But I think she's disingenuous in this notion that they're, that we are somehow similarly situated. My mission is expansion of voting rights. Her mission is the contraction of participation by limiting those who have the right to vote from being able to use them. And how do you expect that to go, her group? I expect them to spend a lot of money and I expect them to support and suborn all of these attempts to erase access to the right to vote. And I expect- So she hasn't called you and said, let's fight these bills. <laughs> she has no interest. And that's the- I'm just curious that she called you. No, now. I. she is not. I, I, as you may know, I worked with her uh, we worked together on the Atlanta Dream. I, like many, was surprised by how quickly... She's changed. <laughs> She's well, changed. I don't know if she changed as much as she adopted a facade that is anathema to the things that I believe in. And as long as she is clear about her intention, which is to support the conservative notions that preceded 2020... That means she is supporting voter suppression. She is supporting eliminating access to progress and avoiding, or worse, blocking the very changes necessary to improve the lives of Georgians. 
there is nothing great about that. So just to be clear, communities of color do tend to vote Democratic, though. Is that right? And that's part of your calculus, too? Well, so African-Americans are the most likely to vote Democratic. In Georgia, unlike in some parts of the country, we have a stronger tendency among Latino and AAPI. But part of that is based on the behaviors of the Republican Party in the South. If you go to other parts of the country, Latino and AAPI voters may have a different voting habit. But here's my point. We never once registered a single person based on partisanship. We don't have the right. Georgia doesn't do partisan voter registration. But more importantly, I have no truck with saying that you can only register people who agree with you. Democracy can only work when it works for everyone. When you break any part of democracy, you break it for everyone, no matter who your target is. As a partisan, I'm going to try to get my people elected, but elections are not partisan. Elections are completely open. The people you choose may be partisan, but the process should not be. And that's what causes me annoyance. So what do you say to Kelly Loeffler if you were speaking to her right now? She wants to waste more of her money. Go for it. (laughs) We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Stacey Abrams after the break. This podcast is supported by Merge. Planning on adding integrations to your product in 2024? Merge can help. Merge's API allows your developers to integrate once to offer hundreds of product integrations across key software categories. Merge maintains your integrations for you and provides tooling to make it easy for your customer success team to manage your integrations without engineering. Go to merge.dev slash hardfork to learn more about Merge and to get $5,000 off your choice of an annual plan. My name is Thomas Gibbsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, fueled roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Last time we spoke, you did a very good job predicting what would happen in terms of Georgia and the elections. And you sort of laid it all out. I was like, if you want to know what she was up to, you just went away and did it. You were very clear about what you were doing. Um, For example, you said if you did your job right, any Democratic candidates for Senate would be able to win in 2020. And of course, both Warnock and Ossoff won. Um, So what happens in Georgia's next big election, Warnock, who's become part of this witch hunt, which is what you called it, faces re-election in 2022. Former Senator David Perdue has already announced that he will not challenge Warnock after all. Will he keep that seat? Yes, if we can defeat the voter suppression. Because the whole point of these activities, these are games of inches in Georgia. Out of 5 million votes, 
nearly 5 million. Raphael Warnock won by 93,000 votes. Sorry, I think it was four and a half million. The reality is that if you can diminish the access, if you can remove from the rolls, and if you can discount the votes of enough people, especially people of color, he loses. And therefore, if we have a fair fight, if we have the same schedule uh, and operational capacity that we had in 2020, he wins again. If we instead have this bastion of attack on our voting rights and they are successful and there is no counterforce that comes from the federal government through requiring an equal level playing field, then he can lose. So you said yes, and yet you also said you think these bills are going to pass. So you need this federal bill, in other words. Exactly. So my point is I'm going to be fighting hard for the federal bill to pass because that's the only way we can guarantee that voters can have their say. And if not, he could lose. If not, yes, he could lose. So what did you learn from Georgia 2020 that you think would help turn states blue? How do you scale? There's scaling and then there's replication. Sometimes you scale an organization so that the organization just expands its service map. And sometimes you replicate in the franchise system. And instead you say, here are the benchmarks, here are the metrics, and here are the resources you need. But then you allow each franchisee to adapt to where they are. Changing a state as a franchise model, it's not a scaling model. And our responsibility, my responsibility, is to make certain that any franchisee of democracy plus any franchisees of democratic transformation, big D, that they have the building blocks they need as a franchise would. But my intention is not the scaling notion that is, I should not be making the decisions. Not you in particular, but how do you scale the concept of what you've done? I guess franchise is what we're talking about. Like, how do you put it in a box and let them open their own fast food democracy restaurant? The first is you got to understand what your customer base is. Florida and Arizona are not the same as Wisconsin or Utah. And so you've got to do the analysis of where you are, understand what your opportunities are, and understand what the pathway is. Georgia is uniquely situated because of our demography. If you're in Missouri, you're not going to have the same demographic opportunities that we have, but there are other opportunities because this is a state that once enjoyed a very robust labor population that was decimated by Republican leadership. So let's think about who's still there, who is unhappy with what they thought would occur when their elected leadership did this. So you got to figure out what your opportunities are where you are. Then the building blocks are the same. The building blocks are you've got to build political power within your actual party. Your party has to be effective. You have to understand what the party is and what the party isn't. You have to have political leaders that are willing to take risks and work with other political leaders, not worrying about who gets the credit. You've got to raise absurd amounts of money, but that money can be raised. And part of the conversation we're having is with donors that they need to invest in places and understand that investment cannot be a one-off and it cannot only show up during elections. You've got to work with the grassroots organizations and recognize that they don't have to have the exact same methodology that you have, but they have to have a combined ethos and an intentionality of working together. And then you have to wash, rinse, repeat and evaluate what you did that worked and what you did that didn't work and whose fault it was. So can I get a prediction from you about the national map for the 2024 presidential elections? Will there be a new set of swing states? There were quite a few in this election with Biden and others. Do you feel that that will continue or will these voter suppression bills make that problematic? Well, I will say this. Even with voter suppression, that doesn't mean we can't fight. I think there's still a way to win with voter suppression. I just think it becomes much harder and much more expensive. It is doable, but it is going to be vastly easier if 
the right to vote isn't being fought for at the exact same time you're trying to win an election. If we finally have a floor for voter engagement, then you will see a much more competitive set of races in a lot of states where we have given up hope and in states where hope is waning. Because if people could automatically be registered to vote and if they do not have to fight like Native Americans have to fight to be able to cast a ballot, even though they're vastly under-resourced and the laws, for example, in Arizona make it incredibly difficult to maintain participation or North Dakota, I think we can create change. Pick a state. Is there a state, particular state? I mean, I think Texas is one of the states we talk about a lot. I think Missouri can actually be a more competitive state. I think Ohio can't be written off yet. I think there are a lot of states that in 2008 came over to Obama. Those are states we can look at again. All right. So uh, some Republicans also, the insurrection seemed to be aligned for some Republicans, not very many of them, um, like Mitch McConnell, who's flipping back and forth. But he just said he was all in for Trump again, despite the insurrection. Do you think it was a real wake up call for that party? Or is this just attempts to salvage individual reputations after the attack? I think that there's always a battle between party and power. And I think there are those for whom the party is preeminent. And that's what they're going to fight for. I think that's the strain of Republicanism that we see in Mitt Romney. And then there's the naked attempt to always hold power. And that is why we see the remarkable and almost regularized vacillation in Mitch McConnell. That happens in both parties, but in the Republican Party, what is so terrifying is that rather than this being a theory of the case, we've actually seen evidence of the consequences And too many of them are still grappling with whether they want an effective party or if they simply want naked power. And that's the dynamic that I don't think has been resolved in their party yet. And what about the voters themselves? There's a lot of them. They like them. Yeah. I mean, look, but this notion that we are newly polarized is actually not true. We, We have long been a polarized nation. We are much more aware of it. And there was a terroristic threat that put into sharp relief just how real it is. Mm hmm. And what do you say to those? How would how do you get those voters? I do not believe in conversion of ideology. That is a fundamental issue for me. I do believe in convincing people that choosing differently can get you better outcomes. And so my responsibility, our responsibility is not the conversion of the ideological bent of those who share the nationalism and supremacy notions that drove that insurrection. Our responsibility is to say to those who are looking for a place to be, even if they hold to their normal conservatism, that voting in our party will get you the outcomes that you need. And so my mission is to focus on an outcomes-driven, value-based set of policies and to do everything in my power to make that so. So what about the Democrats? Do you see Joe Biden as the future of the party or a necessary transition phase to a new future? And what is that? I think we keep waiting for these watershed moments that don't happen. Our nation is built on slow movement, either towards good or against bad. And our history has been a history of idealism, atonement, and grotesque betrayal of what we say we believe in. And so each election has us revisiting all of those pieces of who we are But there's no one person who's going to be the transformational leader. No one person can fix everything. And so in this moment, he is the right person for this moment that we're in. We have no idea what the next moment is going to demand. That is why the disappointment of Trump became the decimation of our nation, because he was not only so bad at the mechanics, he had no organizing theory of the case. We've got that with 
Biden. Biden knows how this works. He is willing to do the work, but we don't know what the next challenge will be. And so saying that there's a new Democratic Party waiting on the other side isn't true. Right. But there are tensions in it. There are tensions in it. There have always been tensions. Again, I I kind of push back on this, you know, civil war notion that because we have people along the spectrum, if I'm in Missouri, I'm a progressive. If I'm in California, I'm a moderate. If I'm in certain parts of California, I'm hyper-conservative. And in other places, I'm a liberal. We live in a spectrum nation where we have to fight for progress from where we are. I do my work, I define my work as translating progress into Southern. Doesn't diminish the importance and utility of the work I do, but it may not look like what other people expect progressivism to look like, democratic values to look like. And that's okay. We're a big nation and we are a big party. And it is a good thing that we have tension. It is a good thing that we don't have this uniform orthodoxy that denies the very real differences in where we live and and where we are. All right. So uh, these are the inevitable, what's Stacey going to do questions? I'm just going to go right at it. <laughs> Hit me. Hit you. So did you want to work in the Biden administration? Have they contacted no. you for a job? I am very happy with what I'm doing. I did not seek a position in the Biden administration. Okay. Um, but of course, you might be running for governor. Are you going to run again? I do not know. Why do you not know? Because I have not decided. Ah. Now, I think you want to be governor of Georgia. This is my feeling because you didn't run for senator. Would a gubernatorial type role, which is an operator role, be one you'd be more interested in over a legislative role? I will never run for another legislative role. I do not want to do that again. I was good at what I did. I appreciate the learnings and I'm good. Um, good. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't want to say anything about gubernatorial yet. Not made any decisions yet. What would make you run? How are you making your decision? Right now, I'm focusing on making sure we have elections. Oh, so, okay. All right. Uh, then I'm going to jump from governor. Um, you did once say that you could imagine yourself in the Oval Office by 2040. Is there a narrow window for that? 2028, for example? Well, the question was, did I believe that there would be someone, a woman president by 2040? I said yes. And then the question was, would do I think I'd be in the, the Oval Office at some point in that time? Yes. One of the things I really did like about the, the vice presidential, you know, when they were talking to a number of people was that you were very clear about that you would want to do a job like that. Tell me why you wanted, I, I know why you did it. I think it's fine. I was sort of surprised that people were surprised that you expressed interest as if you had to be coy or something. Why did you want to do that job? Because it's an extraordinary opportunity to fix the broken places in our society. It is a role that has access to lifting up those issues that are not given absolute primacy because they aren't the issues that matter to every American, but they matter to a lot of Americans. You know, here we have billionaires deciding where, when we're going to space, you have billionaires deciding all kinds of tech things. How do you change that idea of people owning their government or feeling like they run their government? Right now, we are re-exploring as a nation who we are and what we are capable of. And this has been sort of a resettling that's happened over the last 30 years, last 40 years. I do not begrudge the private sector from engaging before the public sector does, but I support this notion that we should have a public sector that is competitive and more importantly, that is a leader. When we capitulate, when we give up and say that the private sector has the obligation to do everything, then we are lost. I don't think that's where we are. I think our priorities have shifted And the urgency of this moment has denied us the space to have, no pun intended, the real conversations we need to have. But I think the beauty of America is that we'll get to it again. 
and we will do it with leaders that are ready to lead. Right. My argument was that it's the American people's decision on what we should be doing, although I appreciate their efforts and thank you for the rockets. Um, Do you want to go in space? Oh, I'd love to. Where would you want to go? It will not happen in my lifetime, but, you know, voyaging beyond the stars through Star Trek and, you know, meeting new races and new, you know, civilizations. Basically, you know, I'd love to be on, you know, the Enterprise or Voyager or Discovery, but I would love to go to the moon. I'd love to see Mars. I would love to be in outer space. I think there is a majesty and a beauty to exploration and that we are, as humans, driven to understand as much about the universe as we can. And when you have the capability to explore, you should take it. All right. So I was going to ask you who you look up to, who you yourself look up to. So pick a Star Trek character, if you like. Who do you look up to among those characters? Captain Janeway. Uh, She... Of the captains, and I, I love Captain Picard. Yes, well, Captain Picard is sort of the quintessential captain, but Jane... What about Kirk? You're leaving out Kirk? Captain Picard is, to me, the quintessential captain. Okay. Right. <laughs> because I came to it from Next Generation. I have I have respect for Captain Kirk, but he was not the captain that introduced me to the franchise. Okay. Janeway, though, is the captain who had to grapple with isolation, with being cut off from resources, with the requirement of pulling together disparate community into a shared opportunity. She had to make hard choices about who to be and how to hold on to ethics and hold on to a sense of identity while also trying to create a new common collective. And so I think that she is the best captain. I think that the way she had to navigate the hardships of being cut off from everything that she knew to be true is a real testament to the kind of leader you can be when you don't have the luxury of resources, support, and a roadmap, then who you become is the testament to who you are inside. Who does that sound like? Uh, what about a real person? You're telling me she's not real? No. <laughs> she's not. She's like, I, like, I'm done. What? Thank you. Good night. Bridgerton isn't real either. <laughs> All of them aren't real, just so you know. What, who, what? Give me one real person. I'll let you go. My mom. My mom was a college librarian who was underpaid and underappreciated, became a United Methodist minister, served communities in ways that they're still talking about today, a decade after she left, raised six children, has been married to my father for 52 years, is the most moral person I have ever known, and is one of the kindest people I will ever know. My parents are amazing, but my mom is an example every day of the kind of woman I intend to be. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you. We really appreciate it. All right, bye. Bye. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba El Arbani, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. It's not a novel by Stacey Abrams, but we promise you'll enjoy our episodes. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, 
you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.